Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living today. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and our topic today is the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita in a modern world. My guests today are Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, authors of the new book, When Love Comes to Light, Bringing Wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita into Modern Life, which, as you probably guessed from the title, is a translation and commentary on on the Gita. Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor teach yoga throughout the world. They founded the Yoga Workshop in Boulder, Colorado in 1988 and are also the authors of another book, The Art of Vinyasa. You can find out more about Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, their events, and also, I was going to say, Mary, I think the recipes on the site are really (laughs) lovely, so you can also check out a bunch of recipes that look delicious on their website, richardfreemanyoga.com richardfreemanyoga.com. So welcome, Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the Yoga Hour. Oh, we're happy to be here. Thank you so much. Great opportunity. (laughs) So before we begin our dialogue about the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita in the modern world, let's begin with a yoga moment. Let's, you know, uh, they say, uh, walk the talk, practice what we preach. So So let's just begin right where we are. Whatever you're doing, whether you're sitting, standing, walking, just bring your attention to your body. Feel your body in space. Feel the surfaces that are supporting your body. And then turn your attention within, allowing your focus to shift from your mind to your heart. And just notice, notice your breath, perhaps the cool air flowing in your nostrils on the inhale And the warm air flowing out, just being in the present moment. And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate from the Yoga Hours founder, Yogacharya O'Brien, taken from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Our best friend is our higher self. 
Our best friend is our higher self, self with a capital S. To be a friend to that self requires the discipline of turning within, becoming aware of our deepest desire to live a holy life and doing it. Be confident in yourself. Go forth boldly. Do that which is yours to do. So once again, Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, welcome to the Yoga Hour. It's really delightful to have you as guests and to discuss your new book, When Love Comes to Light, and to talk about the Gita. As I was thinking about this episode and doing some preparation for it, I realized we could have probably an innumerable number of conversations because there is so much to talk about in the Gita. Obviously, wisdom about non-attachment, the connection, the connectedness of all things, um, there's all kinds of information about the gunas, about Samkhya yoga, the constant change of the manifest universe, karma yoga, yoga of selfless service, yana yoga, the yoga of wisdom, <laughs> bhakti yoga, yoga of divine love. I could go on and on and on. <laughs> so let's start with how did you each become interested in the Bhagavad Gita? Oh, well, years ago, um, I, uh, was lured into a one of the early Krishna temples, uh, and uh, this was before it was, you know, they were on the streets uh, being. And uh, <laughs> I became fascinated. You know, I was simultaneously fascinated by uh, you know Buddhist practice, <clears throat> but uh, somehow I went in and. Then, as they started to become, uh, what would you say, more um, cult-like, mm. uh, I jumped ship and went to uh, India mm. uh, to try to, you know, get back to what it's really about. And so, uh, and there I met many people related to them, and then, you know, just outside, and I. Um, became a monk and uh, traveled, which was one of the first instructions is to travel and check out everybody else rather than, you know, hide in your own little cult, but go and see what everybody's saying. And, but part of the general discipline is you just memorize texts. You know, mm. the, the, the old way is, you know, the teacher doesn't really want to even talk to you about it unless you've memorized it. And right. so, and of course, memorizing is just, the music and the chanting. <laughs> right. And so at the time, I, I probably memorized, and I not that I remember it now, um, maybe a, a good quarter or a third of it I could just wow. recite. Wow. And, uh, but it's a problematic text. Uh, <laughs> if you actually read it, it's um, often misinterpreted. Yes. And uh, it's I think it's designed to be slightly... Uh, upsetting if you mm. just really listen to it and then and I think that's on purpose <laughs> and that's 
our whole thesis. It's yeah. designed to make you inquire and to go, oh, wait a minute, what is really going on? Right. And it's very effective in that way. Right. And, uh, so how about you, Mary? When, oh. when did your interest start in the Gita? Well, I got involved in yoga a little later than Richard, back in the uh, mid-early uh, 1970s. And at that time, I was studying at university and was studying uh, Gestalt uh, psychology. Mm. And when I was taking my first yoga classes, this text came up in class, the idea of it, which it often does in a yoga class. And so I started looking at it and, you know, recognized this parallel between what I was studying in psychology as this global view of things, which is the Gestalt view, which had always made sense to me. Um, but the problem with the, within the Gestalt view for me was uh, that though I knew many practitioners who were... Um, really heartfelt people. It wasn't as embedded in the teachings that that part of the global view, the interconnectedness, really is this unspeakable connection that we all share with one another, with nature, etc. And so it piqued my interest at that point um, that these two parts of my uh, life that were, you know, starting to take form that they had something in common and that that part that was in common between them felt like it was something I was, you know, very familiar with, that I had known in, a, in an intimate way since being a child. And so, wow. at, but I didn't then just dive into the Gita. Um, yeah. You know, I, I kind of played around with it a little bit, would put it down for years. And it was later when I got more, uh, focused on yoga, that then the Gita started being a text of, and and had met Richard and knew how much he loved the text. That it, you know, I started really looking at it in a different perspective. And to me, it's one of these texts that so many of the ancient texts from all traditions are, which is exactly what we are trying to. Uh, point to in our book. It is a text written by people who are wanting to help other people um, make sense of the world. So, mm -hmm. you know, this idea that is this modern thing of, oh, I wish there were a handbook for life. And there are hundreds of them in these ancient <laughs> histories. Yes. And this happens to be one of them. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, fast forward. So you've written this, you know, new commentary and translation. And even in the subtitle of the book, you, know, you talk about bringing wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita into modern life. So what was your impetus? Why did you decide to write this new commentary translation at this time? And I should also just probably clarify that and say, I know how long it takes to publish a book. So, you know, all of the stuff that's been going on this year of all the coronavirus and all that stuff, I kind of have a feeling you were working on this before <laughs> that. <laughs> it was like been in press, um, you know, and so all of this current, you know, brouhaha and all of the things that we're facing right now, it's just another is another example on the pile of all the things that we have to deal with. But you make the point in the introduction. It's like, in a way, it, it, these are the same questions that people have faced always, that humans have faced. Mm -hmm. So, 
Yeah, and it is it has been brought to you know the forefront in this last year. But yeah, you're right. We you know sort of uh, danced around doing it because it's a daunting idea to, yes, to write can. about the Gita. Yeah, and so it it just happened that this timing was as it is. Yeah, and and we 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 have a friend who's a Buddhist teacher who's. Uh, just saying, oh, the Gita is a terrible text because they're teaching violence, you know, that you should go out and just kill people. And which, <laughs> No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so either. Yeah. Uh, but he was actually teaching, um, you know, he was a professor and he was teaching during the Vietnam War. Mm. And, and But people have used the book. He was teaching Tibetan and Indian philosophy and was forced to teach the Gita at a time where there was great resistance to yeah. war. And so he's he's been, you know, he's, <laughs> it, it really came forth to him that that's what it was. But part yeah. of our goal has been to show him there's more to it than that, which we may have done. I think so. Yeah, I, I think he's good. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, in, but in... Traditionally, you know, in, especially in contemporary India, you know, with what's going on uh, politically in terms of kind of the uh, nationalistic feeling towards yoga and this is our tradition and we don't want these other people in our country. And, you know, there's a lot of violence uh, in contemporary India that... Um, that they, I'm sure, would not hesitate to quote the Gita and go on, soldiers, do your duty, stand up and, you know, get rid of those Muslims or something, because they're... Wow. And, uh, and so it's, it's a book that's been used to justify, you know, uh, political extremism uh, by, you know, autocratic leaders. Yeah. Uh, and then it's, it's been used also, you know, it's been misinterpreted to you know, create cults uh, that then also are kind of autocratic, mm. <laughs> you know. Either. And uh, but then when you look at yeah, when you, you look, actually look at it, it yes. completely takes that apart, right. and it's almost like oh, because you're irritated by those things. Now look more deeply, because Arjuna was irritated uh, at the beginning of the book by. Uh, yes. The same old, it, not the same old political problems, but really, you know, it wasn't that different. There was a lot of um, misunderstanding. Right. Uh, and that's the whole story. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but what I was going to, you know, point to is just the ahimsa, you know, harmlessness or, or kindness or, um, or uh, compassion that is the first of the, of the uh, yamas that, you know, I don't see how you could look at this book and, and come out with the idea of let's, let's all go kill people. But uh, for listeners who are not familiar with the Gita, and I imagine there are, you know, many out there. So would you describe this setting of this battlefield and the two main characters, Arjuna and Krishna? Oh, okay. Um, in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell, yeah. In Ten words or less. Um <laughs> This was a, a huge war that was about to take place. Um, um, as part of a, a very large, probably the longest book in the world is the Mahabharata. Um, 
and I've not read the entire thing. I've read pieces of it. Um, and it's these two, it's actually one very large interconnected family, but um, somehow through, you know, greed and uh, lust, one of the, a very bad person has uh, come to power named Duryodhana, who is a uh, psychopath, basically. Um, and, you know, not unlike, uh, you know, a lot of contemporary political problems. And uh, so the, the, all of these dynasties have been split apart and they've uh, tried, you know, diplomacy and uh, it's a very complex story. It goes on chapter after chapter after chapter. Um, and the Gita is embedded in the center of this, of yeah, the Mahabharata. The late, yeah, the late center. Yeah. yeah. Because it's kind of <clears throat> just about the, the... Anyway, it's come to blows. <laughs> and uh, probably any reader would be, yes, you know, it's, it's time to get rid of that uh, psychopath... Uh, because if he wins the war, it's going to be terrible, mm. because he'll, uh, you know, he's an unethical person, and he, you know, has no pity on others. He's simply greedy and, uh, you know, lustful, literally. Um, but then you think about it, and so Arjuna, and so they blow their... And Arjuna is on the side of the good guys. Yeah, Arjuna is part of the good guys. And it happens <laughs> that uh, Krishna whom we know, we know who he is, but he also happens to be Arjuna's dear friend, like his right. pal. Sacha, his pal, literally. Yeah. Right. And, so Arjuna's and, like the prototypical student. I mean, he is, and we'll talk about this in a sec, about sort of where he is in his mind. And then Krishna's uh, higher consciousness, uh, supreme consciousness, divine, right. um, and also the best friend. Of yes, him. right. And, and so, Arjuna also has been trained as a warrior, oh. which right. is, you know, so it's like... Well, he's a prince, yeah. so he's not only a warrior, but he's involved in diplomacy. Uh, and so that makes it complex. <laughs> so, Richard, you were about to talk about the blowing of the conch, so why don't you pick it up there and then talk about the chariot and what they do. Yeah, so, so all of the warriors on both sides are all excited, um, as which is their duty, of course. And, um and so they start to, uh, um, and it's the bad guys. Okay, we'll make it simple. <laughs> the bad guys, although we love them, they're they're still like a, they're a problem. <laughs> and there are a lot of good people in the bad guys, as we. Um, they blow their conch shells, and uh, you know they, it just makes you to blow a conch shell is, you know, really makes you feel your body, you know, vibrate, and this gets them all, you know enthused for yes let's go out and just do it you know don't be don't be afraid let's have a good fight um and then um after they've done that then um the side of uh krishna and arjuna they start to blow their divine conch shells and uh they blow it and the sound is so uh what we would say embodying and overwhelming that everyone on both sides is like completely stunned. And um, then uh, having had this, oh, now we're ready. You know, we have the, we feel our bodies. We feel what's really going on. Uh, Arjuna said to his friend, 
pull my chariot up the middle path between the two armies. I want to see them. And uh, which always reminds me there's a the middle path is historically at that time really a reference to Buddhist philosophy, you know, the, of the middle path. And so Krishna pulls the chariot up between the two armies in so that, you know, you can actually see. Uh, and he says, behold, uh, Arjuna, this one family, which was all, they're all called the gurus or the doers. And just in saying that, he was saying, look, the same uh, family on both sides. And Arjuna actually sees that because then he looks and he sees friends and teachers and on both sides uh, because it's a very complex political mess, even even as complex as today's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and, there's uh, also... I'm sorry, go ahead. And then he he's this like, well, these are my... You know, he actually sees that it's one big family, and he sees, and then he just starts to think, um, are we doing this to, to gain a kingdom? You know, and if we have to kill all these people, what kind of enjoyment is there in going to, you know, if we have the kingdom, if all the people that we want to share it with are dead? And it's very smart thinking. And so Arjuna, he, his compassion uh, really wakes up, and he goes, wait a minute, why are we fighting? And so, and of course, the reader who's involved, you know, is thinking, well, you're fighting because the good guys and the bad guys. But <laughs> right. we as readers have to go deeper, too. And so that is the very clever beginning uh, where Arjuna is in an ethical dilemma, where if he, uh, he doesn't know what to do, because if he doesn't right. fight, then maybe it could be worse and more people will die. But if he does fight, maybe... That could be worse, and uh, he's not sure what to do. And uh, I think I'll stop you there and uh, just um, point to the what you also talk about in the book and the way that I've, when I've studied a little bit of Gita study that I've done, is about the metaphorical or symbolic reading of the Gita that looks at the chariot. So here's this chariot, and it's the body, and there's Krishna, you know, the supreme consciousness who's driving the chariot has the reins. Then in this symbolic reading, the five horses are our five senses. And so here's this, you know, this person with kind of like uh, uh, a good angel <laughs> and a bad angel, maybe, you know. I mean, there's the ego-driven, you know, uh, decisions that could be for his own self, for his own benefit. And then there's this question about what's the right action, you know, what is the the right thing to do. So would you, do you want to comment on that, you know, more like symbolic look at this battlefield? And his body. Yeah. And yeah. And so Krishna is, um, Krishna being, you know, the, the divine beloved is also loves to serve others. And he's, uh, representing the the discriminating awareness or the highest function of the intelligence. Uh, right. And then the uh, different levels of the chariot are different levels of mind, all the way until you get to the, the horses, uh, which are the senses. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and so, you know, we're pulled about, you know, by the senses and or the 
and we're pulled about by almost the what we think are sense objects or separate things out there. And if you have the intelligence operating or you have a good charioteer, which we all have available, um, then the senses will not pull you uh, through either attachment or repulsion mm. into the wrong situation. Mm -hmm. um, and so the body is, is called a yantra, uh, which means just a vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, we're all in, you know, these, we all are in a chariot, a symbolic chariot. And, uh, and finally, Ar Arjuna, who's, you know, the, um, he's called the Jivatman, uh, or the, the, the story of the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, he just says, oh, this is... <laughs> And he... Right. <laughs> and I was going to, as if I can interrupt there, because I, I just love this description, you know, from the Gita of the despondency of Arjuna, which is where this starts. And so let me just read that. I, I don't think we have too much more time before the break, but, um, you know, this is this is from the book. So uh, he's he's you can imagine he's in this chariot. You know, he's facing this like, you know, very difficult decision about how to act, what action to take. And he becomes despondent. My limbs sink down, my mouth dries up, my body trembles, and my hair stands up on end. Gandiva, his bow that he's holding, Gandiva drops from my hand, and my skin is burning all over. I am not able to stand steady, and my mind is flying about. And I think the reason that that spoke to me that, you know, because it's like, wow, haven't we all been there? Exactly. <laughs> we all been there with our limbs sinking down, our mouth dried up, trembling body, hair on end, <laughs> mind flying about. It's like, yes, I know that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, the despondency of Arjuna is, is uh, where it starts. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, which we'll do right after break, maybe think about this, is um, why is that important that he start there in this total, you know, despondency? So with that, we've come to the break. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with our guests, Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, authors of the book we're discussing today, When Love Comes to Light bringing wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita into modern life. You can find out more about their teaching schedule and events at their website, richardfreemanyoga.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. When we come back from the break, we'll explore more about applying the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita to our lives today. We'll be right back. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. 
Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, insights and practices for spiritually conscious living. Welcome back. We're speaking today with Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, who teach yoga throughout the world. They founded the Yoga Workshop in Boulder, Colorado in 1988 and are also authors. In addition to the book we are discussing today, um, When Love Comes to Light, they're also the authors of The Art of Vinyasa. So right before the break, Richard and Mary, we were talking about the despondency of Arjuna. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to, I wanted to just ask you, you know, such an interesting place to start, right? I mean, he's despondent. I just read the description. I mean, he's totally shredded. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he can't even hold on to his bow. You know? <laughs> so why is that an important place to start? Well, I, you know, I think for all of us, we find ourselves in situations, maybe not quite so dire as, you know, the beginning of a battle, but we find ourselves in difficult or um, morally compromised or you know, confusing situations all the time. And the tendency that we have, the tendency of mind, is to immediately leap in and fix the situation or decide this is what needs to happen. And that's a wonderful uh, you know, aspect of being human is that we can take actions you know, in times of, of stress. But sometimes if we leap in too quickly, um, we really can't see the whole picture and we don't have space for feedback and interconnection with the rest of the context of the situation. Mm -hmm. And so on one level in, in the Gita, by him being so despondent at the very beginning, it is a demonstration of the need to kind of let go of all of our preconceptions, all of our theories, and to sort of wake up to whatever it is that's right before our eyes. Um, And to, in that process, to become comfortable with the idea of not really knowing what's going to happen, because the mind wants to know. And we really benefit often by not knowing. And so And yet that's an uncomfortable place to find ourselves. So that's one reason, I think. Yeah. I'd say even as a a rose garden. That's right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I was just going to say, so, you know, uh, um, Krishna pulls the chariot up and it, you know, it's something about the, you know, the blowing of the conch shells. It's, it's allowed a new realization for, Arjuna that he didn't see before. There's something that's going on here that he didn't see before. And then he's thrown and he's thrust into doubt. And part of that is kind of the way he was looking at the world up until that point. Um, yeah, he had to let go of the way he was looking at the world up until up until that point and be open. And so to me, that's the, you know, marvelous thing about this description of, of, uh, you know, the despondency of Arjuna is, Yes, he's, you know, his um, hair is on fire, you know, his mouth is dry and, you know, he feels shaky, but it's a moment of potential there. There's a moment of potential there that wasn't there 
before right. that, that wasn't, you know, there when his ideas about the world were fixed. Yeah. And so there's this, there's this opportunity that opens, you know, then, and then what is interesting and, and kind of funny, of course, is that they're sitting in this chariot for the other 18 chapter or nine, uh, 17 <laughs> chapters of the book talking, they're having this big chat. <laughs> I don't know what the guys are doing on the on the sidelines. I don't know if they're having a, like a you know a poker game or just entertaining themselves. Krishna and Arjuna are just talking the whole rest yeah. of the book. <laughs> so, so uh, um, there's so much to talk about, as I alluded to at the beginning, and we could you know talk about so many different things. But um, one of the things that I um, that I wanted to talk about is favorite verses. And for me, a favorite verse of mine from the Gita is one that I, that I remember and that is, has been helpful to me at a given time, you know, in my life, that is what makes it a favorite. And so one of my favorite verses is um, chapter two, verse 40, which states that even a little bit of this practice removes great fear. Yeah. Even a little bit of this practice, and for me, that's both Dharma and yoga, removes great fear. And that is a really helpful verse to, re to for me to remember, because when I'm in a situation where I am afraid, um, I again, I've returned to this verse enough that it sort of comes to mind, and I can uh, I can relax a little bit into it. I can relax and know that there is a connectedness, that there is a wholeness, and that part of my fear is when I've lost connection with that. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you two, do you have, do you each have a favorite verse? And and how has it maybe been helpful to you in, in your life? Well, we have verses of the day. <laughs> um, Depending on what's going on, more yeah, more favorite what, this day or more favorite another. Depending on what the current crisis is. <laughs> That's right. Um, do you want to go first, or it's up well, to you. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to do. Okay. Okay. So today we have uh, chapter seven, verse fourteen. Daivye shigunamai mama maya duratyaya mam evaye prapadyante mayam etam tarantite. And daivi means divine, daivi yesh. So he's saying, divine is my guna composed maya. And then, and very hard to go beyond because it's maya, because it, it creates hallucinations and uh, paradoxes and mere images of things. And only those who take refuge in me. Um, cross over this divine illusion. And so mm -hmm. it's pointing out that the illusion is also very sacred rather than a bad, you know, it, the, right. it's a confusion, it's a principle of, that's creative that is just so uh, impossible to figure out. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but those who, you know, take refuge, uh, He's not using the word surrender. He's taking taking refuge, uh, mm -hmm. which is a distinct. You know, they can cross easily beyond it, but only those who do that. And so mm -hmm. then you start to see, oh, this is a divine thing. Mm -hmm. uh, this principle of change, this principle of mind, this principle of confusion. Mm -hmm. And so I like that. <laughs> Yeah, when I listen to that, I, I hear um, an echo of 
um, a Bible verse, and I don't know the Bible well enough to say where it came from, but uh, this idea about uh, heaven extending all the way to the earthly realms. Um, And so this feeling, what I like about that is, is the feeling that we're always close. We're always close to the divine. We're always close to supreme consciousness. It's always with us. Yes, uh, we need to take refuge there, you know, and then that's the way to, uh, you know, that's the way to, to move through this, um, incredible world that is so um, beautiful and um, horrible um, that can both uh, light up your soul and break your heart. Yeah. 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 Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, there's so many verses. We were one of the ones that really goes along with this theme that we're weaving here is, is a few verses before the one Richard pointed out and my, Sanskrit is non-existent. Uh, okay, therefore, mine is too. <laughs> therefore, I will not try to uh, embarrass myself. I can say <laughs> okay. Rasoham apsukanteya prabashmishashishurayaho pranava sarvavedeshu shabdake parusham rishu. Yeah, and and it it in English, is that I am the taste of water, son of Kunti. I am the light of the moon and the sun. I am the syllable Om in all the Vedas, the sacred sound of space and the virility in men, which is a little bit, I don't like that part of it. But. Yeah, that's, <laughs> but it also means the, 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 the life of, force, the juice, the, the juice of life. Humans, yeah. <laughs> the yes, director, yes. anyway. But, but the, the part I love <laughs> about that is that it... It uh, shows this contrast between, you know, I am this glorious thing like the light in of the moon or the sun, which is just beyond expression. But I'm also. Oops, it looks like we just lost them and I hope that they will come back. Um, I hope uh, we'll have a chance to uh, finish that thought. But um, in the meantime, uh, let me talk about um, something in hopes that they'll be um, be able to pick it up when they come back. Um, one of the the things that they describe, which I enjoyed um, about this battlefield, this um, battlefield where um, this conversation is taking place, they describe it as both uh, the field of Dharma and also the field of action. And so this is the dilemma for Arjuna. How, how can he take action? What is the right action to take? And it touches on this idea of Dharma, Dharma as right action in the world, which has to do with all of the skills and the benefits that we have. Oh, good. You guys, are you back? Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you now. I lost you totally there for a couple of minutes, and I was just kind of talking about Dharma, waiting for you to come back. Yes, so, sorry. Do you want, that. <laughs> do you want to go ahead and, and that's also. okay. Let's go no. ahead and pick up, pick up. Yeah, uh, so I was talking about uh, just the, the fact that it's this very simple thing also beyond the idea of we have to be something magnificent, that the, the real joy in life and the uh, direct experience of something as simple as tasting water, which many of us would think, well, that doesn't even taste, Um that that is as important mm. as anything else, and that that direct experience is what 
really brings uh, life and interconnectedness and all of these things we've been talking about, it brings it to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. the difference between understanding something intellectually and actually experiencing it. Yeah, yeah. yes. Which actually is a great segue into <laughs> one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book, which is, um, I should mention, it's sort of in three uh, parts. So the first part is your commentary on the Gita, and the second part is the actual Sanskrit, and then the, the English translation of the actual verses. And then the third part is these em- embodiment, or I guess it's a it's a appendix, uh, these yeah. embodiment exercises. So um, why did you decide to include those? Well, you know, it we do embodied practices as well as contemplative practices. And in our embodied practices, we approach them as contemplative practices in a way. Uh, yoga postures, we, we sort of joke about but not joke about it, that they are just uh, meditation or pranayama for restless people. So in, in, until you're ready to really go in deeply, maybe you know, moving your body can help you to um, explore the inner uh, landscape. But then also by having an embodied experience, like um, you'd mentioned earlier, you know, just looking at a bubble and the transformation of a bubble um, with a reflective sort of meditative quality, you start to disappear in terms, like we were saying of Arjuna, uh, sort of dissolving into the background so that you can wake up to what's actually here right now mm-hmm. and feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, because we are, we have these yantras, these vehicles that are our means of experiencing the world. And through them, we uh, can, you know, tap into the intelligence of the body the intelligence of the breath and the combination of breath with body that allows the mind to become still. Mm. So that's why we did it. Beautifully said. And um, let's just take a minute to describe that embodiment exercise because you and I were talking about it on the break. Um, So it's this, it's, it has to do with interconnectedness um, and it has to do with change, with constant change. And that was what you, you point to the section of the Gita, the chapter that you uh, discuss those things. And then here's a way that you can actually experience them. So how do people do it? Give them a little, a little, um, tip of, you know, how they could, how they could do that embodiment exercise. Well, I think, you know, one simple way is you have a a cup of tea or a cup of coffee in the morning. And some of us these days even have lattes or cappuccinos or tea with some milk that you can kind of uh, whisk up so that it's got a frothy surface. And rather than just sort of forgetting about what you're actually doing, which is having tea, which is, you know, both if it's caffeinated, maybe giving you a little boost, but also beginning to nourish you, etc. Without thinking about that often, we just, you know, chug the tea down or chug the coffee down or absentmindedly drink it. But if we focus on the surface of it and see the way the surface of that particular liquid is transforming, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we can stop to generalize and realize we ourselves are transforming in the very Mm -hmm. moment. Our day is transforming, et cetera. And it, it becomes sort of a meditative 
practice mm -hmm. rather than just ignoring what's right before our eyes. Right. Yeah, lovely. So one of the other embodiment exercises that you give is um, instruction in a simple sitting meditation that focuses on the breath. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> one of the other verses, um, uh, chapter six, verse uh, three, 33 to 34, Arjuna is talking about uh, meditation it's, and, and the mind and how the mind is as difficult to control as the wind, which I believe is, is pretty, um, it's not going to be news to anyone who's actually tried to sit in meditation that the mind <laughs> is as difficult to control as the wind. I think that's going to be pretty, one of your very, very first experiences, if you haven't experienced it yet. Um, so what do you see as the role of meditation? In, in um, you talk about it in, in the um, exercise, the sitting meditation exercise with the ability to focus, bring your focus back again and again to the breath. Um, why is that important? And being, you know, that ability to focus and being able to quiet the mind. Um, yeah, meditation is the tool. Um, and so the ability to focus the mind, because the mind wants to focus anyway, but it's watching how the mind chooses something mm -hmm. uh, to make sacred because uh, it's already in that process. And so the mind chooses, oh, this is what's important and this is what's... And then when you really look at what you've chosen as a kind of a sacred field, you know, I'm going to watch my breath, I'm going to watch my sensation, um, then you start to see, oh, wow, it's connected to everything. And then at a certain point, um, you see, oh, there's nobody there. You know, there's not a separateness in mm -hmm. it. And there's not a separate me observing it. Mm -hmm. And so you get the, and in classical yoga, that's called samyama, where you have concentration. And then all of a sudden, you start to see, wow, there's a whole background and depth. That's, everything's there. And then you go, ah, and there's actually nothing separate about mm -hmm. it. And that's mm -hmm. your tool. And then the job is to take that tool everywhere you go, into little right. things, to big things, to anything. Uh, you, you apply that tool. And that's the whole practice right there. Because we tend to do it anyway. We, all of us are religious in some kind of you know, way, perhaps a diluted way, where we think, oh, that's important. And I'm going to focus on money or I'm going to focus on fame or, you know, on getting some cheese to eat or something. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that is essentially, you know, religion gone. Everything is religion gone bad for human beings. And then we mm. just take that same principle and we go, let's really look more deeply at it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, I wanted to ask you, here is this amazing book that is chock full of all kinds of information, all kinds of wisdom that you, um, I think one of the reasons that it's still being read today, as you said, it's, it's this idea of an instruction manual for life. So how do you use it? What would you recommend? Somebody who's new to the Gita, they're just starting out their Gita studies. What, what do you, how do you use it yourselves? Yeah, I would recommend um, that you find a translation, if you don't speak Sanskrit, that you find a translation that um, you're 
that resonates with you, um, that that you like the way the the tone and the feeling of. Um, and there are so many books on the Gita. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we of course like our translation, but there are many, many, many others. Right. And um, and then also in a in a way, you know, to just open the book as a, a beginner, a raw beginner, and just see what passages, uh, you know, open the book and see if there's something that catches your eye. Mm-hmm. Because, and and if it does, read it, but then don't just sort of read it like you would a, um, you know, a manual for your car. Read it, that verse, and then think about it. Let it sort of resonate with you. and And don't try to make too much of it, but don't try to you know, make too little of it, to just Mm -hmm. take it slowly. And then once you feel like you've had, because part of that is that the messages are repetitive throughout the book. By the end of chapter two, pretty much most of the messages that are given there, except the the ones in chapter 11 and in in the very, very end in chapter 18, most of them have been sort of, you know, sort of at least touched upon. Mm -hmm. And so find out how it speaks to you, start there. And then at some point, it's very important to go from the beginning and maybe find a study group or find a teacher who's teaching it, et cetera. But in the beginning, take it simply, mm-hmm. take it easily and and see if you like the story and like the, the messages. Mm-hmm. And like Arjuna, don't be afraid to say, wait a second, that yeah. doesn't make any sense. <laughs> So I was just going to mention that this is one of the two um, texts that is highly recommended for study in our branch of Kriya Yoga, which is, excuse me, in the lineage of Yogananda. And of course, Yogananda had a very, very long um, uh, translation and commentary on the Gita. It's like two volumes. It's beautiful. And it's also really long. (laughs) So... Um, and then Ray Jean Davis, who's um, Yogacharya O'Brien's teacher, also has a, a much more succinct, uh, you know, summary. So I would echo uh, what you just said, Mary. Find something that is speaking to you, and um, and spend some time with it because there's a tremendous amount there that is. Uh, well, I, I know people who are, uh, you know, have been students of the Gita for many, many years, serious students, and and still feel like they're just beginners. Yeah. So there's a lot of depth and a lot of richness there. So in closing in a like a last minute or so uh, did you want to leave some words of encouragement or inspiration with our listeners well i think you know that just the fact that you were tuned into this podcast um means that you are inquisitive means that you are seeking some connection to uh something deep inside you and um, as we were talking about taking the reading of the Gita slowly, take that and, and take that idea that you are really curious about this world and where you found yourself and how you can make it a better world um, by being kind and compassionate and interacting with others. To take that and just, again, sit with it and realize that you know, you can't change the world or yourself overnight. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you've even shown up 
is vitally important. So maybe keep showing up. Mm -hmm. Nice. All right. And with that, unbelievably, this hour has really flown by. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. And we've been discussing the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita in a modern world with our guests, Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, who teach yoga internationally and wrote the book we have been discussing today, When Love Comes to Light. You can find out more about Richard and Mary at their website, richardfreemanyoga.com. Thank you so much, Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, for our listeners, we encourage you to join us for the many online programs offered by Yogacharya O'Brien and the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, uh, which is the sponsor of this program including the morning meditation, which occurs daily from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. Pacific time, afternoon meditation from 4 to 4.30, and an upcoming online workshop with Yogacharya O'Brien on November 29th and December 20th, titled Path of Wonder, Journey of Advent. You can find out more about these online programs at csecenter.org or ellengraceobrien.com. Join me next time on the Yoga Hour for an episode titled Ayurvedic Self-Care for Natural Healing, when I will be talking with Kate O'Donnell, author of the new book, The Everyday Ayurveda Guide to Self-Care. During this Thanksgiving season, you may also want to check out an episode from our archive titled The Gift of Gratitude from September 5th, 2019, when Yogacharya O'Brien is speaking in this episode with May McCarthy. Again, it's called The Gift of Gratitude. You can find it in our archive at unityonlineradio.org slash the yoga hour, and you just put May McCarthy in there, or I think you can even search for it. Uh, if you're a subscriber, you can search for it through the podcast app, whatever, whichever one you're using. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, Meditation Center in the Kriya Yoga Tradition. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And thank you to the Yoga Hour team, assistant producers Anne Hayes and Mickey Coronado, CSE's Global Media Outreach Manager Holly Gray, and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at unity.fm. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash IMDivine2022. 